joining us once again for the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast. I'm your host, Vic Sage, and this week we're going to be talking about the iconic, fast-paced, twin-stick multi-directional shooter released by Williams in 1990. I am, of course, going to be discussing Smash TV. Let's go! As Smash TV came out in 1990, this obviously means it wasn't a title that I played at the showbiz pizza of my youth. In fact, while it might have been in a gas station that I didn't visit, I do not recall seeing the game in my neck of the woods at all. My first experience with Smash TV did happen at an arcade, just not one in my hometown. I first played Smash TV while in high school on an art class day trip to a nearby museum. We left early in the morning and took a tour of the museum, which left us with the rest of the afternoon. So the teacher arranged for the bus driver to drop us all off at the mall. At that time, our local mall still had an arcade, one called Land of Oz, that I've talked about before on the podcast. This arcade, though, which was in Tulsa, made my head spin when I walked in. If Land of Oz was basically one room, this place was three times that size with an impressive row of pinball tables in the back. But it was the island of arcade titles that really took my breath away. While there were quite a few classic games as you might expect, like Pac-Man, Galaga, Defender, and so on, there were also games I had never, ever seen before. I can recall Aliens, Chase HQ, Final Fight, Stun Runner, to point out just a few. And there was, of course, Smash TV, which had a crowd of teenagers around it too deep. I used a bit of the money I had with me to play some classic titles, as well as giving Aliens and Final Fight a go, always keeping an eye on an opportunity to play Smash TV. Our art teacher had informed us that we had two hours of free time for ourselves, to shop and eat, etc. I probably spent about an hour wandering the toy store and bookshops, grabbing a bite to eat in the biggest food court I had ever seen. It took around 30 minutes for the crowd to disperse around Smash TV. One of my fellow students, a friend named Poncho, was in the arcade too, and I asked if he wanted to join me. So we stepped up and plunked in our two tokens and began to play. And our first game did not last long. We put in more tokens to keep up the intoxicating video game carnage that was taking place on the screen. With the game obviously being influenced by 1987's The Running Man, we were having an absolute blast. We were also managing to burn through our tokens in an attempt to stay in the game. That isn't what became the main concern though. I can vividly remember Poncho leaning over to put in more tokens to continue when he stopped. His gaze was focused on something outside. Uh, Vic? Is that our bus leaving? I turned to look out the window of the arcade. Yep. That was indeed the school bus starting to roll out of the parking lot. As you might imagine, any thoughts of playing Smash TV further were quickly abandoned, and we both ran from the arcade and through the parking lot, yelling and waving our arms to try and get the bus driver's attention. Thankfully, we did get a fellow student's attention, and she was nice enough to yell for the driver to stop, and we were let on board. And our art teacher was rather angry, to say the least. 
After we took our seats, we realized it was 10 minutes past the time we were all supposed to have been back on the bus. Pancho and I spent the remainder of the trip making sure not to cause any more problems and telling anyone who would listen about how awesome Smash TV was. I wouldn't get to play Smash TV in the arcades again until the first and sadly only Retroist arcade meetup at the 1984 arcade in Springfield, Missouri quite a few years ago. One where I was able to meet a fellow Retroist enthusiast by the name of Philip Carey, who you might see chiming in on posts on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page now and again. I will see if I can't dig up some of the photographs of Philip and myself taking on Smash TV. I'll include them on this podcast post on the pop culture retrorama site if I can find them. Where I ended up playing Smash TV the most was actually thanks to the Super Nintendo Entertainment System port of the game, which I believe was in 1992. I have quite a few happy memories of my friends after work crowded next to the TV in my bedroom and doing our best to beat the game. Which we never did, I should add. Smash TV was produced and released by Williams, a company that I've talked a bit about in past podcasts like Sinistar, Joust, as well as the very first episode of the show with Moon Patrol. One of the folks on the design team for Smash TV was none other than Eugene Jarvis, co-designer of the 1981 arcade classic Defender, as well as another legendary twin-stick multi-directional shooter, which was Robotron 2084, originally released in 1982. In my personal opinion, Eugene Jarvis ranks up there with the likes of Toru Iwatani or Shigeru Miyamoto. Unlike some of the other arcade and home console games we've covered on this podcast, there was quite a team responsible for bringing Smash TV to the arcades. We have John Tobias of Mortal Kombat fame, Mark Turmel of NBA Jam, Todd Allen of NARC, Larry DeMar, co-designer of 1981 Stargate, Tim Coleman of the abandoned Judge Dredd arcade game, Al Lasco of TROG, George M. Petro of Terminator 2 Judgment Day, Jackie Hager, who also worked on Revolution X, Glenn Ship of Trisports, Ray Sajaka of Cruisin' USA, Sheridan Arsler, who worked on one of my favorite arcade light gun games, 1998's Carnival, Ray Gay of Gauntlet Legends, Carrie Mednick of Killer Instinct, Greg Ferez of Arch Rivals, Tim Elliott, who worked on Joust 2, Mark Lofredo of War Gods, as well as both Jim Nichols and Rob Ashworth. You know the old saying, it takes a village to raise a child. I think with all that talent involved, you can see why Smash TV turned out so great. I found an excellent interview with Eugene Jarvis thanks to the Arcade Attack Retro Gaming Network. In the article, which was posted on February 1st of 2016, the iconic designer talked about how he was brought on board the Smash TV design team, saying, quote, My buddy, Mark Turmel, Mr. NBA Jam, was a huge Robotron fan and convinced me to join him in creating Smash TV, a new take on the twin-stick genre. We had a riot throwing in Running Man and Robocop references. We had no idea that the insane world of Smash TV, where players kill for toasters, would decades later be mirrored by the reality TV phenomenon with shows like Survivor, etc. Smash TV to this day is maybe the most entertaining and challenging twin-stick game. There definitely is a huge opening for a sequel, and I challenge any and all developers to take up this gauntlet. Maybe throw some Terminator and and Avatar-type stuff in there. End quote. I will, of course, include a link to that full interview between Eugene Jarvis and the Arcade Attack Retro Gaming Network on this podcast post on the Pop Culture Retrorama site. 
Eugene Jarvis and Larry DeMar would take off from Williams in 81. After completing Defender, they started up their own video game company called VidKids, where they were contracted to come up with not just Stargate, but Robotron 2084 and 1983's Blaster. I am happy to say that Jarvis is still in the arcade game business. In 2001, along with Deepak Dale and Andrew Aloth, he co-founded Raw Thrills Incorporated, responsible for such arcade games as Target Terror, Big Buck Pro, The Fast and the Furious, Guitar Hero Arcade, the 2013 Batman racing game, World's Largest Pac-Man, and Halo Fireteam Raven, to name just a few. Many of these titles can be found at Dave & Buster's. The sounds in Smash TV, as well as the music, were provided by John Hay, who, like Eugene Jarvis, worked on more than a few of the Williams pinball tables. Just a few arcade titles and tables include Earthshaker, Funhouse, Doctor Who, Total Carnage, and NBA Jam. In addition, the voice of Smash TV's MC was provided by Paul Heist, who also lent his voice to the likes of The Creature from the Black Lagoon table, as well as Bram Stoker's Dracula, The Judge Dredd Pinball Table, and Revolution X, to single out a few. Good luck! You'll need it! Smash TV tasks one to two players, at the same time, to brave the most popular game show of all time. The setting is 1999, and contestants literally are putting their lives on the line to win big money and prizes in front of a live studio audience, attempting to survive the threats of three arenas, which are made up of individual stages or rooms, connected to one another and often allowing the player the choice of which room to visit next. By using the two-way joysticks, with the left controller, guiding movement up and down, left and right, as well as diagonally in those directions, and the joystick on the right taking care of the direction you are firing off whatever weapon you might currently be carrying. Player 1 controls the red costume contestant, with Player 2 stepping into the boots of the blue costume contestant. They both appear dressed like they are about to step into the boxing ring, but the head protection they wear offers no safety from their opponents in the maze-like arenas of Smash TV. We don't know how they were chosen to be the next lucky contestants on the show, but with its Running Man influences on display, I somehow doubt it was a voluntary situation. I'm not sure we've tackled a game quite like Smash TV, where the rules of the title are so very simple. With Smash TV, it really boils down to shoot at anything that moves, as well as collect the stacks of money, gold and silver bars, and various prizes that pop up in gift-wrapped boxes, like brand new VCRs, a sleek 1999 Roadster, a magnificent 2600-inch television set, luxurious vacations, luggage, toasters, Smash TV home games, lawnmowers, and a year's supply of meat products. These are obviously all for the purpose of raising the amount of the player's score. But the thing is, when they show up on the floors of the arena, they won't just stay there. After a few seconds, they will begin to flash before disappearing. After finishing off the boss of an arena maze, players are treated to a calculation of the bonus points amassed for all of the prizes they have collected. And for what it's worth, each prize collected while fighting through the arena rooms immediately gives you 5,010 points. Yet again, that is before the bonus point calculations.
I personally think, in the later arena rooms, that the sole purpose of the gifts is to lure you into dangerous situations in an attempt to rack up your score. Say, maybe placing it in the middle of a mob of enemies, or once in a while obscuring the fact that a landmine is possibly hidden underneath it. If the player rushes over to pick it up, they might find a nasty surprise waiting for them, if they aren't careful. Obviously, if you walk on a landmine, or if an enemy makes contact with a contestant, or the player is hit by shrapnel or laser fire, etc., you will lose one of your lives, as well as hearing the disappointment from the studio audience. In the case of the landmine, you will also see various body parts go flying upwards in an arc. Rubatron 2084 has been cited as being a pretty hard game. You really need to be at your best to last more than a few stages. I feel that Smash TV cranks that up to 10, then snaps the dial off as it raises the difficulty further. I think that one of those reasons is that with Robotron, the enemies, say like the Hulks, won't start coming after the player. They'll go after the human family in the game. With Smash TV, it feels like the pressure is more intense because the enemies are coming after you, and that is an ever-present situation. Before we talk about the multitude of bad guys, though, I mentioned weaponry a moment ago. You see, appearing in various locations on the floors of each stage, or rooms of the arena, are power-ups for your default weapon, each easily identifiable by its icon, like the three-way, or some call it the shotgun, which rather rapidly fires three bullets in an inverted triangle pattern. Underneath the player's score is a line of six colored segments, with your default weapon that happens to be red. Picking up a weapon power-up turns those segments to green, I believe you can use a particular weapon power-up 42 times. The green-colored segments will turn red again one by one until you're back to your default gun. Although weapon power-ups are generally readily available, it's up to the player to decide to go after them. It might just depend on if it's too dangerous to reach if enemies are swarming you. Besides the three-way shot, there's the grenade launcher, which causes impressive explosions in close arcs to the player, and shreds mobs that are crowding around you. There's also the rocket launcher, which also wipes out packs of low-level enemies like the clubbers. The rocket launcher also is very powerful, and while the rockets themselves travel in a straight line in whichever direction they are shot from, it does provide the player the benefit of striking from afar unlike the grenade launcher. Although in the boss stages, you can pick up an upgraded version of the grenade launcher that fires off golden colored grenades with a little more extra reach and explosive power. You'll need that too, as the bosses can be a handful to say the very least. More on that in just a bit though. There are power-ups that a player can pick up that can offer a helpful boost, like the Speed Boots, which grant you a 40-second burst of speed, extremely useful in later stages of the arenas to safely keep you out of reach of the enemy mobs. Although, that extra speed can also be hard to control, in particular around those deadly mines on the ground. There's also the Force Field, or Personal Barrier. After picking up this power-up, three green rings will appear around the player and begin to flash. You can run over the mines or touch enemies, you're completely safe. After five seconds, the green rings will become a single flashing red ring, letting you know you have about four seconds of safety left before it vanishes. With the drone power-up, which looks a little like a metal ladybug, once you grab it, it will begin to circle around the player's contestant, providing extra firepower. 
mimicking whatever weapon the player is currently using. I've read online that if you have a weapons power-up, the drone shares the special ammo with you. So in other words, it will help you clear out enemies, but it is also a drain on your power-up. One thing to be concerned about with the drone, though, is it takes damage, especially if it's making contact with enemies while it's spinning around you. Once it's taken too many hits, it will fly off. Acting a bit like the drone, minus the extra firepower support, are the Razor Blades. Running over and collecting this power-up provides a spinning shield of death. Sort of. Five spinning bladed shurikens will begin to rotate around you. Although having said that, they do not block projectiles aimed at the player. They do, however, carve up the enemies they come in contact with. After doing enough damage, a shuriken will fly off. Something to keep in mind is that even though they shred the likes of the clubbers, if they come in contact with a tank or even a red or blue bomber, they will be damaged and fly off the stage. Although, if you have a full five, you could probably take out a couple of the bombers. Last and certainly not least is the Smart Bomb, or Nuke Power-Up. While you won't be finding these powerful devices on the boss stages, you can pick up one of these gold-colored bomb icons and every enemy on the stage is instantly blown up. Actually, I suppose there is one more additional power-up, the Extra Man, which is an icon that resembles the head of the contestant you are currently playing. You can only have nine Extra Men in reserve at any given time. Okay, I think it's time to talk about the enemies. I am going to attempt to streamline this and provide point totals. The rooms or stages that make up the arena maze of Smash TV have four closed doors, located north, south, east, and west. The enemies will appear, depending on their type, in groups or individually. Then, the door closes until you have cleared the entire room of enemies, allowing you the opportunity, especially in the second and third arenas, to travel to the next section of your choice. After clearing out the first room of each arena, you're given a few seconds to look at a map of the entire area, which shows you where bonus rooms are located, as well as the location of the all-powerful boss. The clubbers are the foot soldiers in Smash TV. They carry large clubs to take out the player with, hence their name. There are two versions the green and purple clubber, each one worth 500 points. The green clubbers appear to be a little slower to react than the purple variety. Bear in mind that more often than not, the enemies are coming at you from all four directions at the same time. That is why I said earlier, I feel Smash TV is more intense than even Robotron 2084. You have the red and blue bombers. No, not Mega Man. I always assumed they were called Mr. Shrapnel. These hulking bruisers have gigantic bombs strapped to their backs, and their main goal is to travel the outer edges of the room a short distance. Then, with their bombs ignited, they begin to shake, before exploding in a gory spray of blood, and worst of all, deadly shrapnel. The further away you are from a bomber when it goes off, the easier it is to avoid said shrapnel. Due to their larger size, it takes eight shots to take out a Mr. Shrapnel, where the clubbers only need one. Both the red and blue versions of Mr. Shrapnel are worth 2,750 points. Next, we have the Gunner. These foes are situated in the north section of the wall in various arena rooms, manning a large machine gun. They will spew off a string of bullets at the player in either a straight line or at an angle. It seems to me they react and aim at the contestant when first attacked. I also believe they attack in unison. Luckily, the force field power-up helps when standing there and taking the duo out. The Gunner can take 16 shots before being destroyed, and it's worth 6,000 points each. 
in addition. If you manage to take out all the enemies in the room besides the gunners, they will blow up on their own at the end of the stage. But they've been shooting at you the entire time, so it's better to just take them out, right? Tanks are green-colored gunners, slowly riding around the room in miniature gray tanks, pausing after a second or two to fire off a volley of large bullets in the direction of the contestant. I guess that since the gunner is exposed, it is the reason it only takes four shots to take them out. I know I sound like a broken record as usual, but remember that you are usually being mobbed by all of these enemies at the same time. So four shots might not sound much, but with waves of those clubbers soaking up your shots, the tank can be quite deadly. This next enemy are actually the worst in my opinion, even if they only take one shot each to destroy. That is the orange and pink atoms. These tiny balls travel in packs, resembling angry DNA strands that expand and contract. Once you've wiped out half of them, the rest will self-destruct at least. Their swarming behavior for some reason always catches me off guard, and besides the bosses themselves, I'm killed more often by the atoms, which are worth 2,050 points. Next up, we have some enemies that first appear in the second arena, starting off with the orbs, which are blue and red colored foes. They float around the stage and stop and shoot laser beams towards the contestants. While their swarm tactics are troubling, the good news is they can blow up their own kind with those lasers as well, and they only need one shot to take out. Each one destroyed will earn the player 2,500 points. Also in the second arena are the multicolored hover droids. The smaller hover droids show up in small groups. They only take one hit to dispatch and are colored white, red, green, and yellow. The bigger version, which online I've read is called, appropriately enough, the big red hover droid, these are brutes, and even though they act a lot like the small hover droids, they will generally show up in larger groups swarming on the player pretty quickly. It only takes a few shots to take them out, and, like dispatching the small hover droids, you will earn 1,050 points for each one you destroy. The green and blue hover saucers travel almost like a centipede, in a line of nine saucers in fact, curving as they head towards the player and even bouncing against the sides of the arena stage walls. At least unlike the orbs, they do not shoot anything at the contestant. It takes two shots to annihilate both versions, and for your troubles you will get 2,000 points. The flying saucer is a dark purple enemy that, while it doesn't fire a projectile at the player, is rather fast in its movement across the stage of the arena, and it will try to crash into the contestants. It takes a couple of shots to destroy them. The first hit actually knocks it backwards just a little, and at least it doesn't appear in swarms. Although, like I said, with their speed, they don't need to. Wrecking a flying saucer earns the players 2,000 points each. Beginning in Arena 3, which apparently takes place on either the old Nickelodeon Legends of the Hidden Temple game show set, or at least a reasonable facsimile, you will encounter the purple and brown colored Snake Men. These spear-carrying enemies are kind of the half-human, half-snake equivalent of the Clubbers, brandishing flashing spears, and all too eager to stick you with them if they get close enough. Thankfully, like the Clubbers, it only takes one hit to destroy them, but they have a nasty habit of coming out in groups. Taking out a Snake Man, of either color, earns you 500 points. The differences between the two foes is that the purple-colored versions don't move as fast as the brown-colored ones. As the third arena has a jungle setting, 
and those spearmen are half snake, it only makes sense that the sadists behind Smash TV also unleash swarms of actual deadly snakes across the arena room floors. Courtesy of the Mayan-like statues in the north walls, these faces spew out a tidal wave of these light green enemies, whose only goal is to strike the player with their deadly bite. They act a little like the gunners, actually. Instead of bullets, they spread themselves out diagonally or head straight down. They won't actually follow the contestants if they are off to the far side. They just head to the bottom of the room and disappear. The snakes are easily killed with one shot and earn a player 1,000 points each. Last but not least are the centipedes. These show up in segments of four. These foes are not only fast, but they soak up multiple shots before they are destroyed. I suppose we can take small comfort in that they do not fire any projectiles at the player. Each segment is worth 2,000 points. There are three arenas, which means there are three bosses to face off against. These are very large enemies and they are extremely deadly. Which is why when I originally played in that mall, out of town, Poncho and myself were pumping in tokens like there was no tomorrow. At the end of the first arena, players will come face to face with the Mutoid Man. This hulking half-man, half-cyborg bursts through the north wall to menace the player, moving about the arena floor on tank treads. You can't get too close to him, as he will gladly run you over. In addition, at the base of the Mutoid Man are two gunners. The boss can also fire laser beams from his eyes at the player, doing a good job of tracking the contestant as they move around the stage. Taking out those two gunners is the first step, but then you find out that your default weapon has no effect against the Mutoid Man. So, it is key that you pick up the readily available weapons power-ups. The enhanced grenade launcher does wonders. Each hit with a weapons power-up causes the mutoid man to flash, letting you know you're hurting him. It also gets you 250 points for each hit. You will literally blow the boss away piece by piece, arms and chest, exposing a bloody skeleton, finally leaving only his head before he explodes in a gory geyser of blood. Occasionally, Mr. Shrapnels will also appear. At the end of the second arena, contestants come face to face with the huge and armored Scarface. This circular floating green colored head floats across the stage, shooting electrical spark orbs from his eyes, as well as firing off spinning mines. A player will have to attempt to destroy the armor protecting his face. 16 segments that circle Scarface's enormous head. Multiple shots of the default weapon will wreck said armor at first, but as is the case with these bosses, the real key is to use the weapon power-ups, especially the grenade and the enhanced version of the grenade launcher to really take it to Scarface. Eventually, you will not only blind him, but blast away the flesh from his face, revealing a grimacing skull beneath. Keep pouring on the punishment, earning yourself 250 points for each shot, and he will finally explode. You have to face off against two bosses with Arena 3. The Dice Cobras, twin gigantic snakes, emerge from the Jungle Temple Arena floor, swerving back and forth on their extended necks, emitting streams of fire at the player. Now the good news is that the damage to these giant snakes are shared. Just concentrate on one of the snake twins and use the weapon power-ups to put an end to their terrifying reign. Although you need to also watch out for spinning mines that are released during the battle. You do get 100 points for each shot that hit the snakes. But this isn't the end of the game. You see, during Smash TV, you've been told in messages at the start of various rooms to attempt to collect keys to a place called the Pleasure Dome, which requires that you pick up at least 10 keys to enter. In fact, when the game was originally shipped, the Pleasure Dome level wasn't included in the game. 
It was when players kept trying and trying to uncover the secrets to get to the location that arcade owners began giving feedback to Williams. So it was with revision 8 of the game, players were finally able to locate the secret rooms leading to the Pleasure Dome, which begins after you have defeated Dice Cobras. You still have to fight your way through a mob of enemies, but upon reaching the fabled location, instead of prizes littering the floor, you will find showgirls that you rush about to pick up. They are worth 250 points apiece. After you exit the Pleasure Dome, you face the true final boss, the MC himself. The same character who's been making wisecracks throughout the game now appears basically as a version of the Mutoid Man, sometimes exclaiming, I'd buy that for a dollar! You take him down just like the Mutoid Man, except instead of laser blasts from his eyes, he literally fires his eyeballs at the player, as well as what appears to be a line of drones that rush towards the contestant. You get 350 points for every shot that hits the MC, but remember that your default weapon is absolutely useless against this foe, although wearing him down is a little more humorous than gruesome as you blast away the MC's outfit to reveal his red polka dot underwear beneath. I'm not sure how streamlined that actually turned out, but the truth of the matter is that Smash TV was designed to suck in tokens, and it did its job well. Looking online, it appears as if the time to complete the arcade game is around an hour. Now imagine how many tokens it must have taken to complete that task. It's Smash TV, the NES game where you play for cars, cash, and the ultimate prize, your life. With 360 degrees of firepower, battle every enemy in sight before they get you. Smash TV. So much action, you may want to use two controllers, and you can. Just when you think you've won, round two. The arcade smash for your NES from a plane. The Defender sees lots of alien ships. The Defender sees lots of radar blips. Every blip is a ship. Well, it's just like I just <laughs> On a body snatching trip. And it's up to Defender to save them. Defender, a great Atari game. Have you played Defender? It's the newest of the smash hit home video games that just keep coming. Only from Atari. It's better than me. Have you played Atari today? Smash TV, as you heard from one of those ads, had home console ports. To talk a bit more about those ports, as well as twin-stick shooters for home consoles and computers, is the esteemed Earl Green. There were several home computer versions of Smash TV, as well as several console versions. Console versions came out on the Game Gear, the Genesis, the Sega Master System, the Nintendo Entertainment System, and the Super Nintendo Entertainment System. In the computer realm, official versions of Smash TV came out for the Amstrad CPC, Atari ST, Amiga, Commodore 64, and of course the Sinclair Spectrum. Now out of these, the Amiga and Sinclair versions got especially good reviews. It's interesting that the Sega console versions and the Sinclair version were developed by Probe Software, which was later bought out by Acclaim, while the versions on the Nintendo consoles were developed by Melbourne, Australia's own Beam Software. The NES version did have an option to use the D-pads on two controllers, which meant that if you had a two-player game going, you had to have the multi-tap and you had to have four controllers. Now, good luck on getting those two controllers to stay put. And that brings us to the whole story of trying to do two joystick games 
for consoles and computers. Now, by the time Smash TV landed in the arcades, the two-joystick control system was not really a novelty anymore. We had already had Crazy Climber, Black Widow, Robotron, Tutankham, Crawl, and don't forget that before any of those, there had been tank games that used fairly realistic two-joystick tank controls, such as Battlezone and going all the way back to Tank itself. But Battlezone at home was almost always reduced to a single joystick. Some interesting control schemes were used for the earliest console ports of Crazy Climber, since they couldn't really reliably offer the two-joystick experience on a console. The Atari 5200 edition of Robotron had a bulky base that would hold both of the 5200's controllers for a more arcade-accurate version of that game, but of course that base didn't change the fact that, well, you were still playing the game with those insane, non-centering Atari 5200 joysticks. A special mention needs to be made here of Flashpoint, an unreleased game on the unreleased Odyssey 3 console, which means very few people ever saw this. It had a control scheme very similar to Robotron or Smash TV, and the bonus was the prototype Odyssey 3 consoles that were made had built-in storage for the system's two joysticks toward the back of the machine, which meant that those spaces for storing the joysticks would also hold them in place so you could play Flashpoint, although you practically have to be sitting on top of the machine to do that. That was a great idea. So, of course, the Odyssey 3 never came out, and neither did Flashpoint until much more recently. You can play it in emulation if you're curious. You really had to get to the SNES version of Smash TV to find a controller that could actually come close to pulling off the two-joystick experience with the D-pad and the cluster of four buttons. And of course, once you got to the dual analog sticks of the PlayStation, finally it was possible to do two joystick games justice. So let's hear it for the dual joystick games. You wouldn't think it would be as hard as it was to bring that experience home, and yet apparently it was. So for a long time, two joysticks were right up there with speech synthesis and vector graphics as things that you could only find in the arcade. Kind of like my wallet. While we do have Robotron 2084, Defender, Moon Patrol, and even Revolution X at the arcade, with that last one housed in the second wing the last time I checked, we do not have Smash TV, at least at this time. I'm afraid that this week we do not have a segment from Gary Burton, the head tech at the arcade. But hopefully he will join us next week once again. And friends, I think that about wraps up our episode. As always, I want to thank you again for taking the time to listen to the show. I really do appreciate your support and hope that you are enjoying this second season of the podcast. I know I'm not an expert, just a fan of classic arcade and home console games and enjoy talking about them. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is currently available on iTunes. I'm working on rebuilding the podcast library very slowly, which was a result of switching from the Retroist site to the pop culture Retrorama one. You can check out daily posts by visiting www.popcultureretrorama.com. The Diary of an Arcade Employee is available on Google Podcasts as well as Spotify. No matter how you listen to the show, if you have a moment and enjoy the podcast, why not give us a rating and review to help us find new listeners? You can find out more about the Arcadia Retrocade by visiting Facebook, or for daily posts, you can check out the Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast Facebook page. I share all manner of vintage arcade and home console fun multiple times a day. As a matter of fact, on Sundays now, at 9 p.m. Central Time, we host a watch party on the Diary Facebook page. Earl Green is a frequent contributor to the pop culture Retrorama site, as well as being a very good friend to the arcade. Earl also happens to head up thelogbook.com, one of the longest-running websites for literally all things pop culture-related. 
Gary Burton frequently shares photographs from the work he's doing at the arcade, posting them on the Diary of an Arcade Employee Facebook page. In addition, from time to time, he contributes articles to the pop culture retrorama site. If you have any feedback or comments about the podcast, you can always reach me on Facebook or throw me an email at vicsagepopculture at gmail.com. You also can often find me posting videos of the arcade on my Instagram account, which is simply vicsage underscore. I, of course, want to thank the Retroist. For over a decade, the Retroist has provided a spot on the internet where fans of all things retro can visit and enjoy the best retro-related articles and podcasts. I certainly wouldn't have my own site or multiple podcasts without the Retroist support. Friends, next week we're doing something a little different. So why not listen to a clip of the subject of the next show? When it's thought of as the worst game of all time, I prefer that moniker because Yars Revenge is frequently the best game of all time in a lot of lists and, and recognition. So I've got the greatest range of any game designer in history. This has been a pop culture retro-rama podcast. Goodbye and thanks for listening. The Diary of an Arcade Employee podcast is not affiliated with or authorized by Williams, Nintendo, or any of the individuals and businesses that have been mentioned in the show. All music and sound clips from the mentioned video games are the property of the respective copyright holders, and no infringement is intended. Audio clips are included for the purpose of review, criticism, and commentary only, and are not intended to infringe. Sensational. Perfect contestant. I want him. End of line.